Well, good evening, and welcome to the London School of Economics. It's great to see so many people joining us for this discussion tonight. So I hope you uh, enjoy the discussion and debate, and very much take part uh, in the debate uh, after we've heard from our speakers. I'd like to create an opening tonight with a quote from a professor here, uh, Professor Fran Tonkis in the sociology department. Uh, it comes from an article she published a few years back called "Austerity, Urbanism, and the Makeshift City." And I think it sums up some of our themes for the evening. It goes like this. The urban common is relational. As an effect of practice, it is as much a verb as a noun. Moreover, it deals in very mundane verbs. Making, producing, participating, moving, sharing, spreading, enhancing, inventing, rekindling. Such acts of commoning constitute many small designs on the city. My name is Adam Kassa, and I'm a research fellow in architecture at the Royal College of Art and a founding member of Teatro Mundi. And it's such a pleasure to be here to introduce tonight's event, Designing the Urban Commons, Lessons from the Field, a panel discussion and debate to launch our design competition, Designing the Urban Commons. In a moment, I'm going to hand over to our chair for the evening, John Bingham Hall, who will introduce the ideas competition in more detail and say a bit more about how the evening will run. But first, I'd like to say just a word or two about Teatro Mundi for those of you uh, who are hearing about it for the first time. At its core, Teatro Mundi is a professional network of urbanists and artists in different cities and offers a forum for cross-disciplinary discussion, cross-disciplinary work, cross-disciplinary research about cultural and public space in the city. The founding idea was that of Professor Richard Sennett. Seeing a deficiency in some of the legacies of modernist urban planning and the voraciousness of capital on the contemporary city, he suggested to bring together people from various disciplines. And in his mind, that would be from the performing and visual arts, so musicians, dancers, choreographers, stage designers, sculptors, photographers, and the like, on the one hand, and people from the broad sphere we call the built environment, urbanism, architecture, so architects, designers, planners, engineers, sociologists, and the like, to bring them together around issues of, of, of shared concern, to have them focus on works in progress instead of finished works, to work and talk about their diverse methods, and to think what one can learn from the other. And this is basically what we do. We host small conversations, deliberate conversations. We host larger public events like the one this evening that start to share and be a mirror to a public forum about other things we talk about. And we try to galvanize and energize provocative experimentation through ideas competitions like the one we're launching this evening. The theme of the night is twofold. It's about the commons and commoning, but it's also about design and designing. From noun to verb to adjective, both of these are more questions than facts. We're delighted to have representatives tonight from three studios and collectives who will help us probe these terms through references to ongoing modes of practice, and I'll introduce them now. First, we're going to hear from Doina Petrescu from Atelier d'Architecture Autogéré, Studio for Self-Managed Architecture. 
AAA is a collective platform which conducts explorations, actions, and research concerning urban mutations and acts through urban tactics, encouraging the participation of inhabitants at the self-management of disused urban space. Next, we'll hear from a tripartite presentation. Ella Perkins, Andrew Belfield, and Ross Bennett, the front row here, from Assembly SE8. Assembly was formed out of a collective need to transform a space in limbo, a space that might find itself repeating in cities like London. The site of an old school is where the group lives as property guardians and later became the center for an active engagement with this idea of the common and commons, and we'll hear from them about what that means to them in their practice. Finally, we'll turn to Andreas Lang from Public Works. Public Works is a not-for-profit organization working between the fields of art, architecture, and design. All of their projects explore how the urban public realm can be shaped by its users and how participation and collaboration can inform a more open design process. So finally, to close, a few words of thanks are in order. First, to Emily Cruz. Can't quite see her right now. She might be over here. But she's the manager of Teatro Mundi here in London and uh, the bedrock of this organization. Also to the team at LSE Cities, who host the project here at the London School of Economics. However, the biggest thanks tonight must go to John Bingham Hall, who is the researcher at Teatro Mundi and really the driving force behind this year's competition and our chair for the evening. So if we could have a round of thanks for all of them, and I'll hand it over to John. And thanks to Adam, whose idea this was in the first place, I believe. And I'm just uh, carrying on the, the flame. Um, so tonight, we're launching a challenge to design new urban commons for the city. Um, the bare facts are that it, it launches tonight. We're open for submissions from today. And the brief is online here at the address you can see. Um, and we're accepting submissions until the 1st of May. There's going to be, um, I mean, there's the little small matter of some prize money, but more importantly, the opportunity to share ideas, share proposals through an exhibition um, in the London Festival of Architecture and also um, through a live event at the V&A where um, winning entries will have the opportunity to, to explain their works to a live public. This is an ideas competition, um, but we hope that by giving architects, activists, community organisers, performers, but also active citizens of all kinds a catalyst to create these ideas, that new propositions will come about showing how design could help make space for commoning in the city. So just like design, I think, could be a, a catalyst for new ways of doing commoning, this competition is a catalyst for new definitions of design. Last year in New York, Teatro Mundi set a different challenge called Designing for Free Speech. So whether it was turning a newsstand into a theatre of protest or an adaptable and mobile machine for demonstration, a floating agora using the river as an abundant new space for public debate to take place, uh, or a kit for free speech turning any street corner into a speaker's corner, these ideas showed how, we could des how design could stimulate the rights enshrined in the US Constitution's First Amendment. Our challenge is inspired by Britain's rich history of commoning, and it challenges design to stimulate new rights to the city. It asks for existing land, for architecture, infrastructures, um, 
or in structures in neighbourhoods across London to be reimagined as common spaces or for new urban commons to be carved out, whether they be in the city or online. But commons are not static pieces of architecture, and that's key to what we're asking. We're seeking designs through which the social act of commoning could take shape by enabling citizens to co-produce urban resources from culture and knowledge to housing, energy or democratic processes. The design, be it a building, an organisation, an urban space or an online platform, is not the final product. It should be, we think, the medium through which relationships between commoners are built. Massimo De Angelis sums this up for me. He says commons should consist of three things. First, a thing, a common resource, something that can fulfil and sustain us, like, as I said, energy, food, shelter, but also culture and knowledge. Secondly, people, a community of commoners who share and use that resource. And perhaps most importantly, a verb, as Adam also said, commoning, the ongoing work required to sustain the community and protect the resource from enclosure by private interest. The challenge here then is to see how design and designers can contribute to these ongoing processes. And that's already happening, as we'll see tonight um, when we hear from these fantastic projects. So um, just kick that off. Let me hand over to Doina um, for the proper stuff that you came here for. Thank you. Thanks a lot for, for this uh, honor to, to kick off the discussion and also for the wonderful introduction uh, Adam and John did. I, I would um, add one more dimension and would say that the question of uh, the commons is at the heart of the current discussion about democracy. And uh, in some of the recent texts, um, Michael Hart and Antonio Negri define the commons as something which is biopolitically produced. We call biopolitical production, they say, the current dominant model to underline the fact that it involves not only a material production in straight economic terms, but also it affects and contributes to produce all other aspects of social life, economic, cultural, and political. And this biopolitical production and the increased commons that it creates support the possibility of democracy today. And according to them, the contemporary revolutionary project is concerned with capturing, diverting, appropriating, and reclaiming the commons as a key constituent process. And at the same time, I would say it is a reappropriation and a reinvention, and this reinvention of the commons needs space and time for sharing. It needs continual and sustained commoning. It also needs specific agency and the contribution of active subjects, act agents, to instigate and carefully engineer this process. Sustaining and designing commons is a challenge for architects and designers. Today, designing as commoning, or while commoning, designing for sharing, designing collectively, accessibly in such a way that design is not perceived as a privilege or as a commodity. Uh, it does not segregate and exclude, but assemble, socialize, and eventually politicize. And I would say this is what we try to do with uh, Atelier d'Architecture Autogéré, which we define as an activist practice. 
working with, at the same time, alternative strategy and tactics for a bottom-up transformation of the city by its residents. We, we are active in Paris, but not only. Uh, and what is specific, maybe, is that uh, it is a collective platform that includes architects, artists, and urban planners, but also students and residents and non-architects, and we facilitate uh, more or less the reappropriation of space by residents and the creation of places for new collective practices and reinvented urban commons. And we are acting in Paris, which uh, uh, many of you might know, but I think we are targeting this uh, euphemistically called zone urbaine sensible, which are areas of uh, urban deprivation. And uh, we are known for these two projects uh, that we did uh, in inner Paris, and now we are developing Rurban, about which I will say a few words today, uh, which is on a suburb, always in the kind of red spots that are somehow uh, strategic, uh, I, would, I would say, um, uh, urban areas that we are targeting. We are targeting them because they have... Uh, not only problems, but also assets and opportunities. There are people that um, have time. There are uh, available spaces, even if they are only for temporary use. And I think we, we are uh, uh, using these opportunities to create uh, urban commons. So this is Ecobox, which is a network of temporary and mobile self-managed spaces that we started in 2001 and is still ongoing. It's a it's, it has changed several locations, but the, the core group and the principle, the design principle, has remained the same. Passage 56, which is a self-managed ecological and cultural <coughs> urban interstice, is just a tiny 200 square meter intervention, but you can see the effect that it creates in the area. And Rurman, uh, in which we are addressing this issue of maybe commenting this idea of urban resilience. Um, and I think with Rurban, uh, as compared with the other two projects, we wanted to address a different scale. We, we wanted, in fact, to scale up from this kind of small projects uh, and almost without budget to a, a bigger uh, and more strategic project that has the capacity to scale up. And uh, we define it this time, I mean, uh, Adam introduced us as dealing with tactics, but uh, in fact, we wanted this time to be more strategic, so we define it as a bottom-up strategy of resilient regeneration um, through everyday life practices, shared uses, collective governance, local and translocal networks, and ecological facilities co-produced by the city dwellers. And... Uh, the principles are uh, that we are providing a sort of infrastructure um, which is built for, let's say, alternative practices to take place, but to take place in common. And um, um, this infrastructure will, uh, will allow, will provide um, uh, somehow um, the possibility for stakeholders and uh, um, you know, participants to, um, uh, to emerge, to meet with each other, to test uh, new ways of uh, uh, living and producing in the city. Uh, so, so they can have different uh, type of um, functions, 
Um, and um, little by little, uh, there will be stakeholders uh, that will be formed. They can have uh, facilities uh, to use in order to set up their own activities, sometimes their own business. Uh, but what is important is that all these are connected uh, in, uh, in such a way that um, you know, there will be also the production and the consumption will be balanced uh, within the area. Uh, so the, 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 these collective hubs will uh, work or will function through uh, closing uh, economic and ecological circuits. As for example, um, waste um, you know, that is produced in one of the units can be recycled in the other. And, um, uh, and this can create a, a sort of uh, economic activity. Um, we have tried to um, apply the strategy, so we, we set up a partnership with uh, uh, the city of Cologne, which is one of the suburbs in the northwest of Paris, and, uh, and with public works, uh, uh, I think uh, you will hear more about urban later today, um, and we obtain um, a European grant for um, um, uh, environmental governance, and uh, we start uh, the implementation of, uh, of uh, urban strategy. And I think uh, this uh, town was strategically chosen because um, it has a high unemployment rate, which means time, people, and also people that want to change their profile, but also a lot of civic organization, which means kind of civic buzz, civic, civic activity um, so, uh, that we wanted to dwell on. Uh, so uh, we imag imagine that we, we will set up uh, three pilot hubs uh, that will facilitate ecological and economical networks. And we started to map the existing organizations um, that are more or less uh, dealing with or de developing resilience practices. And we have built the infrastructure. It was um, uh, uh, an uh, urban agriculture hub, uh, Agrocité, um, um, uh, recycling and um, reuse uh, and eco-construction hub, Reciclab, and uh, a cooperative housing hub which is not yet built uh, but is in, in the process. Um, and we decided that they will work together and they will also work together uh, ecologically, uh, but also that, uh, that the three of them will um, manage collectively uh, 5,000 square meters of urban land. So they will establish an, another way of using and managing urban space. And around them, um, there, there are now uh, 400 users and 20 small uh, enterprises. Uh, some are very small, really, very informal, and, but also a lot of uh, uh, public life, I would say, uh, and civic life. And also, um, they are uh, starting to work uh, uh, and to close uh, ecological loops, uh, so uh, waste, they, all of the units are, are meant to produce energy, are meant to um, recycle water, um, again, waste is uh, circulated between them, and at the end, uh, there is this idea of reducing carbon emission, reducing 
uh, waste uh, as well as reducing the ecological footprint. Um, the next step will be that the, all the stakeholders and the participants in this pro project will get together and will set up a cooperative development trust and they will have the capacity to um, come and further to extend this uh, network uh, towards uh, a bigger network. We imagine that five new hubs will be, um, will be built in the next five years and also to conduct to further um, you know, ecological parameters. Uh, so this is the first, uh, Agrocité, and it was a hub for civic agriculture, pedagogy, and ecoculture. And uh, it consists in an experimental micro-farm, uh, collective gardens, education and cultural facilities, and a community cafe in the local mini-market, uh, with this idea of uh, recycling locally water. I think this, the, the role of these hubs is to also showcase these ecological practices to make them visible and somehow I discovered the power of archi architecture to do this because uh, people can see and can do and can get convinced <laughs> uh, by, by um, experiencing uh, all this. So we have a lot of visits now. Uh, so, um, but also we want to support diverse local economies. Um, you know, some are gift economies, others are um, you know, barter economies, others are, uh, you know, all sorts of economies, including financial economies, and uh, uh, also the knowledge dissemination uh, on urban agriculture and ecological practices. So all these are part of the commoning process that uh, John was mentioning uh, earlier. So, um, so this is how we started in uh, 2012. Uh, with the garden in a sort of tactical way because this was the, the kind of more in inclusive activity uh, in, in the core of a um, social housing estate. And, um, and this is how uh, the garden would look uh, before we started the construction of the hub. And this is how it looked after the construction of the hub that uh, is constructed with recycled materials, um, it also um, has devices, uh, uh, ecological devices like this uh, um, uh, water collection container, water being used in the garden, uh, uh, compost heating uh, prototypes. So there are also internal cycles that are made visible and uh, uh, the uh, people in fact have bought into this dynamic and have started to work around it. Uh, Recyclab uh, was uh, an equipment for recycling and reusing urban waste, um, and uh, we built it on a, uh, on a road that has been closed, that has beca became a cul-de-sac, um, and uh, we built it, um, you know, in this particular condition, knowing that it is a condition that can be reproduced in the future. There will be may maybe in the future many roads that will either re reduce their profile or will just disappear because there will be less cars. And, uh, uh, and uh, we, we, we build it uh, again for temporary use. Um, and uh, we use containers and, uh, uh, and wood construction. 
and uh, RACI Club, um, uh, the principle is that uh, at the ground floor it has uh, workshop space for making and transformation, and uh, at the top it has uh, creation spaces, uh, um, workshops for designers, a residency space, uh, a cafe, uh, and, um, and these are also the kind of activities that we are organizing uh, uh, from flea markets and uh, 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 object exchange to uh, uh, repair cafes and uh, uh, you know other type of workshops uh, with uh, with the residents. And I think this idea of participative governance was something that um, we wanted to institute. And we are working really with ordinary citizens, so there are not activists in there. I mean, we haven't targeted this, this, this sort of active, active category, and it was a, a challenge also to see what, what is possible with people that are not necessarily sensitive to, uh, let's say, ecological practices. And, um, and there were debates and discussion about what to do in the beginning. Uh, we have also organized um, uh, specialized workshops about, for example, here, ecological flows in the area, um, students coming and um, um, uh, doing work with, uh, uh, with the citizens, uh, repair cafes also where people are learning how to repair, um, uh, debates and uh, discussions, but also alternative economic activities that we are um, supporting. And uh, uh, little by little that there were uh, sort of social entrepreneurs that have uh, uh, emerged. Uh, at Resi Club, for example, we have someone who's taking care of the repair cafe. There is a recycling workshop, uh, an, an eco-design workshop as well. Uh, we are organizing coaching sessions uh, and other forms of participative pedagogy. We have a local material database. At Agrocité, uh, there is a local shop now in the cafe. Um, we organize session of skill sharing, a farm market with the products of uh, the garden, but also there is a farmer who's coming um, and deliver baskets. Um, we are doing training. We are encouraging mutual help uh, and, again, other forms of knowledge exchange. And this is the story of Fivon, for example, who was the first entrepreneur uh, who's passionate about compost and, more specifically, about worm compost. And, and he brought uh, this idea, so we built for him a compost farm. And then um, he started a, a compost school. And now he's training other people in the area on how to do compost and how to become compost masters, so how to make a job out of this. Um, Benoit is, uh, is one of his uh, pupils, uh, and he's, he's starting his own business. So uh, Alain is a big keeping uh, guy, so he's, he's keeping his uh, um, uh, bees in, uh, in the garden. Catherine um, is doing local market and so on, Margarida, the, he, she's in charge of the cooperative canteen. Uh, so these are the partners at the, on the bottom, so to say, the more official partners, and on the, um, on the top, more official partners, and on the bottom, uh, the, the, the partners that came um, to be associated through doing, through, through the, the process of, um, of making and doing. 
Uh, and a sort of economic model, I think it's very important to, to discuss about this too, how, how to economically support urban commons. So we started with research that was funded, and we, we considered that is a sort of seed public investment uh, in 2010, and then we got this partnership, um, uh, and we got some money uh, from Europe and from uh, local partners, with this, we constructed the civic hubs, the first three civic hubs, and uh, and during two years, we we we, we encouraged and supported this uh, social social ecological entrepreneurship uh, initiatives, um, and now we have more or less two hundred thousand revenue per year uh, for both units. Uh, from uh, you know, if we are adding all these uh, uh, entrepreneurs, and in the future we are planning that this cooperative development trust will be able able to run 500,000 uh, euros per year with a sort of uh, investment of thousand per year, uh, which will be civic investment, will be commoning investment, um, and of course this will conduct to a reduction of CO2. And what is very interesting is that uh, other municipalities have contacted us, so Rurban has this pot potential now to, um, to disseminate, and also, uh, as uh, Andreas will, uh, will show you, um, uh, a sort of urban franchise has uh, developed also in, in London. Um, and the whole idea is that maybe this network will evolve gradually into a large-scale civic movement, and uh, we hope that uh, you know maybe some of you will be interested to to contribute to this. Thank you. Well. I know that Doina has to rush off back to Paris. It can be a jet-set lifestyle, even being a, a commoner, hey? Um, but hopefully we just have time for a little bit of discussion on some of um, the some of what go, goes on here. And I think what's amazing about this is that it really shows the kind of total, free, you know, total view. I was really glad that you showed this aspect of funding because it really recognises that um, these things to actually be sustainable, dealing with money acknowledging money, funding, and the necessity of that could be really essential. And it's about how to deal with that money and, and how it gets reinvested. Um, so that's just a point for me, and I'm really glad that was raised. But does anyone... I have lots of things I'd like to talk about, but does anyone else want to...? Yeah. Oh, yeah, thanks. Uh, very interesting. I, I was going to ask... Um, I was going to ask the I think it's maybe too early to say this. Uh, um, uh, the, the two previous projects were, um, were cited in a project for low, for third type of uh, living uh, in, uh, in the city, but the low didn't pass, it was supported by the Green Party. Uh, but this urban project, I think it needs time and uh, 
kind of agency to uh, really communicate uh, this potential. And I'm, I'm sure, I mean, that, that there are policy, policy people <laughs> uh, kind of uh, uh, buzzing around. Uh, they haven't taken yet action, but I'm, I'm sure that there will be consequences. Uh, I mean, what I've shown, the fact that there are <coughs> municipalities that are interested uh, and they want to develop or to support um, urban initiatives, it's already a sign. Um, I think that's, the policy aspect is really interesting because um, in one view that I've read of commoning is that actually it needs to be done in order to then be legitimised. And it's the doing it that uh, that common rights in the first place were not kind of granted in advance, but yeah. were, they were kind of things that were already happening would then legitimise access to common land, to collecting wood, to building shelter, that kind of thing was legitimised because it was happening already. So that's, I think it's really important, as you say, to allow that time to establish itself as a... Um, but another thing, I mean, we, we realise that these practices of commoning either are not articulated as such or uh, are, uh, are, have disappeared somehow, I mean, in, in, in the contemporary world, which is also... Uh, and in the contemporary society, which is also um, a multicultural society, where, where we have different cultures, different, languages. different well, cultures of commoning and mm. different understanding of what commoning means, and, yeah. and we we need to re uh, relearn somehow together, and and we need these spaces in which this learning. I mean, it's not. I have uh, skipped a lot of uh, issues here because there are lots of conflicts, lots of problems that I haven't mentioned, and I think in a longer presentation we, we can go into detail with all this because they are very interesting uh, mm -hmm. aspects. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, there was a question over here as well. I so a bit more about the revenue. How, what, what, so you've got a shop and there's, could you say a bit more about how, how you're monetizing, how you're making it pay for itself? The revenue? Yeah. How can we live out of this? You're clearly in really deprived areas, for and who, who's paying what for that two hundred thousand euros yeah, yes. per year? Yeah. Well, I, I've shown it, but I didn't go into into detail. We, we got this uh, European fund for uh, environmental governance. It uh, was a life plus fund, which is a sort of uh, uh, re applied research. Uh, and then uh, we got uh, a lot of uh, different type of uh, public funding in the beginning, uh, uh, one through research, uh, another was a regional fund, another was a departmental fund, the municipality also has contributed to, but I think it was uh, perceived more or less like a win-win project because we were doing such a complex work, uh, which was, you know, at the same time social, uh, you know, economical uh, and political at the end. I mean, this was not maybe recognized, but um, I think we can see the effects now. Uh, and then the, the, the ongoing funds that are generated, you know, how are these enterprises actually working day to day? Are they kind of selling from the space? Are they using it, the space to generate the goods that they can Yeah, not, not all are making a lot of money. Uh, I mean, that this, uh, yeah, the, there is this woman who's, who's running the canteen every Thursday because she, 
didn't, she wanted to learn how to do it, and maybe this can evolve into a business. Mm -hmm. uh, there is this guy who's doing the world compost. I mean, he has a very, very successful model, but uh, it's, a, it's a model that was a bit opportunistic because there is need of um, you know, compost uh, knowledge. Uh, lots of municipalities want to develop this activity, and, and he just uh, set up this compost school, so he's preparing people that then will find jobs. And he's, uh, he's, uh, he's paid for this, so mm -hmm. he managed to live on this. Yes, and what's fantastic is that um, it's the ability to use urban land directly to produce a living, yeah. rather than kind of being separated from those means of actually producing with your yes, hands. And absolutely, and I think that this was another dimension that we add to the previous projects that were more or less alternative leisure spaces where people would come and you know in in the free time and will live in a different way with with, with kind of. Uh, uh, built relations between them. It was another type of commoning. Uh, here we wanted to challenge also the, uh, the, the kind of lifestyle uh, beyond just leisure and to, 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 to bring production spaces that are uh, somehow functioning uh, you know, under yeah. a commoning rule. Mm -hmm. Lots of questions. One, one second for the microphone. Um, I was wondering about the role of rules um, in these urban commons because um, many people say that it's essential for commons to work um, that they have special rules and um, I was interested who defines these rules? Is it you or is it the community itself? Well, um, I think this, this um, evolves in time and I, uh, the, the time factor is very important here. Because uh, we were uh, we were initiators and we had some rules when initiated these uh, um, these spaces, but they are appropriated and there are groups that are formed now. So each space has one or more groups, and these groups will get together into this cooperative land trust. Uh, so so we are in the process of uh, forming groups and and uh, and the groups. Uh, together with other type of members will become um, members of this cooperative so they will then define the rule but we are working also with, with Andreas at the, and, and with the, uh, the, the first stakeholder at defining a charter uh, in such a way that uh, each group will define their own rules but also within a, a kind of wider set of rules that will, will define this, this type of movement Let's just take um, one more and then we should move on to the rest of the presentations. Um, as I said, unfortunately, Doyna has to leave, so that's why we're doing a bit of discussion now. But then the rest, there'll be a lot of opportunity for a much more you know, circular discussion with as many people as possible at the end with everyone who's still here. But just one more over there, perhaps. Um, hello. Um, I would like uh, you to expand a little bit about the temporary... Uh, um, I mean, why, why is temporary or, and, and not more stable? Is it because some sort of constraint coming from somewhere? Is it because it's decided as a strategy? Uh, or, yeah, basically, that question. Yeah, I think this, uh, we are not the only one that are working uh, you know, with temporary use, and I think that this is a condition that we have to accept in the, in the 
big cities uh, in the metropolis where space is very expensive and uh, um, it's very difficult to, to get access to space and I think also to even in terms of commons, to, 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 to think directly about this idea of partnership of, or of property, um, it's, um, it's probably difficult, if not impossible, and probably not very productive. So we thought that opportunistically we can use uh, space available for, uh, for, I would say, a critical amount of time because uh, you need some time, at least three years, I would say, in order to set up a, a sort of so social dynamic. Otherwise, the group won't form, you know, that there is no uh, security about doing something. And, um, and using this period in order to create something that then will have its own agency we will find another space, we, we might have money to acquire space, you know, through this uh, <coughs> development trust. So we are creating, we are using time and working with time, as, as the Sertov said about uh, tactics, mm -hmm. yeah? uh, uh, in order to create longer term and, uh, you know, more sustainable uh, projects. So uh, why not to use temporarily something which is available, which doesn't cost anything, you know, so, so why not to create new uses and new practices, new experiences? It's not necessarily the desire, like a desire in and of itself, but it's a way to get somewhere else, to use, the, uh, to use this new idea of temporary things in the city, which yes. has become very popular. But I think it's very important to use it strategically. Yes. You know, yeah. not just for an event and then go, but to know that you equip the project with, uh, with something that will allow it to survive and to be <coughs> sustainable yeah. you know, long term. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much, Doina Pachesco. Uh, I'm now going to hand straight over to Assembly SE8 without saying any further, but please um, store up your comments and issues and challenges so that we can share them all at the end. Okay. Yeah. Hi. Um, my name is Ross. Hi, I'm Ella. Um, and we'll be and I'm Andy. Um, we're going to start off just by giving a brief introduction to what we've been doing um, on the site, and then we'll pass over to Andy about halfway through. Um, so we moved into Old Tidemore School, which you can see in these pictures, which is in Deptford. And we moved in as property guardians originally. Um, so if you're not familiar with that term, we pay a low rent and we live in a building while um, the owners... It's kind of like a limbo stage while the owners decide what they want to do with it. So this is an old primary school. Um, owned by the council. Yeah. Still. And um, it's due for development because... The old primary school went across the road to a new academy, a new purpose-built building. Um, so really, we, when we originally we moved in, just as it was going to be the place where we were going to live, and we weren't really aware of what the whole site contained. So we live in the building on the left, and then when we moved in, we kind of realised that actually we were living in this huge space with a massive playground, a basketball court, and a wildlife garden. Um, originally, the wildlife garden was closed off, out of bounds we weren't meant to go there um, and we climbed in one night a group of us we moved in as friends already and discovered this totally overgrown wildlife garden um, you can see from the picture uh, it's got lots of unusual forms in it there's like a central pond area and then it 
ripples out with concentric mounds. There's two amphitheatres. Um, and so we, when we kind of discovered it, it was totally overgrown. And finding that, we thought, we've got something special here. We should do something. Um, so at this point, we sort of uh, decided to form a group who would act as like the steering um, sort of drive to get the space open and get it cleared up and sort of able to be used by uh, the local community that we were opening it up to. Um, you see here, this is like a picture of uh, some local kids in a pond, which was so over, so overgrown. We didn't even know there was a pond there until we really got into it. Um, and it was in these first um, sort of open days that we met a lot of the local parents uh, of kids that used to come to the school now at the academy uh, and realised that the loss of green space that had happened due to the move. Um, so we formed a lot of relationships with the parents, some of whom were um, more involved in um, sort of um, grant, grant funding and um, worked for people that we could uh, talk to more about uh, getting money to continue the project. Um, so one of our first partners, oh, to say at this point, we kind of like have organically gone with the project the whole way. And when we started opening up, we didn't really know what we were doing. We just knew that we needed to open up the space and do something. And then the whole project kind of evolved in that organic way. And we were saying the other night, it's kind of like the project took over and has commoned us in the way that we live there because it's not, it's not a defined space. It's not... It's not a community garden. It's not an old school. It's still people still live there, and it's a bit higgledy piggledy. Mm. Yeah, it's still under lock and key as well. Which yeah, we're the key holders of the space, so we have to well, hopefully try and open up as often as possible. Yeah. So um, we started in 2013, and originally we just started clearing the garden, and then we got to know lots of different people in the area. Um, so. We joined in with like free, free film festivals and hosted free film nights, and we were making whistles with elder we found in the garden. Uh, we joined up with other local community gardens um, and run green spaces tours. Stepford doesn't really have very many green spaces, so that was kind of like one of our key drives, realising that we had this wildlife garden that is quite a big space. It's adjacent to the high street but there aren't very many exciting green spaces. There is a park, but it's pretty boring. It's just grass. Um, and ran different workshops throughout the year, really, just exploring what we could do in the space and how could we use it and, you know, working with different people to do this. Yeah. Um, so at this point, we had received... We were in sort of partnership with London Play, and then we'd also received uh, some other funding from who else came that year. Um, so previously, none of us had done any fundraising before, and we were lucky to make partners with London Play, who are advocates for play in nature in London. Um, and they supported us in kind initially. We built a treehouse on site with waste materials from the Olympics, and then um, we started looking at funding that we could apply for ourselves. Um, and one of our first grants was from Capital Cleanup, with the idea that we were going to try and open up the site more, like clearing the access to the gate. And really, from this stage, we're still, we were still working as volunteers in our spare time, um, running the space and bringing in other people to run workshops for free and, and kind of like bartering our time and materials. Um, and yeah, on to last year, we did, uh, we opened up a few more clubs, uh, like a free ping pong club. Uh, we received a small grant to build some tables with some uh, materials that we left over. Um, and and that was really nice just to uh, 
sort of create a new sort of dynamic of people that were using the, the space. Um, and also set up a free school, uh, which was called Registration. Um, and it ran uh, last summer for three days, uh, where we had uh, tutors that gave their time and uh, students could apply from all over, all over the world and come, uh, come to the space and learn with us and sort of share um, their ideas and hopefully sort of create something that we can continue uh, in years to come. Um, and then just to say that mostly like a lot of our audience had been young families just naturally because it used to be a school but obviously we don't have children so doing the ping pong and the registration school was really important for us because it meant we were interacting with people our own age as well and older people and then um, in 2014 really like changed the whole dynamic of the space because through London Play we were successful with some funding for the People's Millions um, which enabled us to pay ourselves to run a session a week well a couple of sessions a week and to bring in lots of other people so we were still having volunteers but p- paid staff as well which was really it just totally changed the dynamic because it is quite a large site and it was good having some people paid who could keep an eye on the more logistical stuff like locking the toilet doors cleaning the toilets all the boring things that you don't really think about when you're going to start running a big project um, and one of our key things that again just changed everything was um, late in September we partnered up with a few other community gardens to um, create Deptford Gardens, I'm wearing the badge <laughs> and um, we ran a festival at the site with a, a, a kind of like RT collective and it, we just had an amazing day it was packed full of people that we would never have been able to engage with because all of our kind of advertising was quite local like flyering, going to schools um, going to the market the weekend and just word of mouth and through running this festival we just had loads of new people come and from that set up um, lots of things which would be able to continue the garden like a friends of group Um, and we increased our activities from mostly being open on Saturdays to running more stuff throughout the week like a wildlife gym when people come to volunteer they cook in the garden (laughs) we've got some pictures Um, so that's a weekly activity that we're still continuing Um, people come to do some people do cooking outside and we harvest fruit from the garden and then some people garden and then we all come together and have lunch Um, and you can see that's one of our tree houses that we built so another thing in 2014 we applied to be one of the pocket parks in London which is a scheme to create 100 pocket parks in London which we are one of them Um, but our pitch was that we would be completely mobile because Um, our lease agreement for the space is that we're temporary in nature so our pitch for our mobile pocket park is that we can take everything down so that tree house can be unslotted and rebuilt onto another tree yeah yeah and so I guess it opens up questions as to what is the lifespan of of perhaps a, a common space is it a temporary project where it's two years or is there a legacy of this and for me, the question is, is to do with value and, and how we value these spaces and, importantly, how we can ensure their success in London. And my role as an architect in this process has been working with Assembly and the, the Friends of the Tide Mill group uh, to look for a, a longer-term future for the site, which is one that's earmarked for development. And so this, this diagram kind of shows all the different kind of groups and, and the relationships between them. So... This site, as, as, as we mentioned, is owned by Lotion Council, and it's the former school. But 
through kind of the appointment of a guardianship agency and the kind of coincidence of you guys moving in there, assembly was, was formed out of the need to transform this space. Uh, and through kind of activating this space, <coughs> the, uh, it opened it up to, to the wider public and, and, and ownership in general. And out of that fo- was formed the Friends of the Tide Mill Wildlife Garden. And this is like a key, key part of the common in the essence that this, the ownership isn't necessarily assemblies. This isn't assemblies' place. It, it's, it's owned by everyone in the area. And this, in turn, is, has formed the Deborah, Deptford Neighbourhood Forum, and in turn, they're trying to influence Lewisham Council into kind of actually thinking about these kind of spaces within the, kind of the master plan. So one of the key features of the urban common is, is co-creation of, of physical space and the role of collective decision-making in determining how space is used. And uh, on, the, on the bottom left is, is, the, is the Friends Group. The, I think it was the first or the second meeting, which actually you know, had to take place in your living room because we, we didn't have anywhere to meet at the time. And what, uh, as ownership of the space is being passed from assembly to the Friends Group, it brings together a group of people who want to collectively manage an asset for the benefit of the community. And this group has been formed as a constituted body to keep this in the public interest. Deptford Neighbourhood Action is, is an offshoot of this group. And it, and it was a, formed uh, as a kind of almost like a tactic in terms of how we could approach the council about starting to retain some of this, these assets. And so what we're doing here is we're using the, the Localism Act, uh, establishing a neighbourhood forum to eventually establish our own neighbourhood plan which uh, retains asset, which hopes to retain assets like this and other spaces within Deptford. Um, and what's interesting is that so the, red, the red marker is the, the, the master plan area proposed by the council uh, for this one site and that's how, this is where it's grown and the, the black boundary is, is where the Deptford neighbourhood action is going to operate and the idea is that well, I think this is quite an interesting opportunity for this kind of practice to grow across and actually be kind of um, planned for, in, in, in essence. And so one tactic we're using to negotiate with the council is, is coming up with our own kind of citizen master plan for the site. So uh, the council's master plan was drawn up in 2007, uh, and it's re- remained largely unchanged in that entire period, despite all these changes that have happened with the site. And what, what we're trying to do is work with their demands, but uh, pro- provide like an alternative as a kind of negotiating tool between ourselves and the council to try and negotiate for the future of this site and other sites across the, the, uh, the area. And I just thought um, it would be, be good to end on this, this quote from uh, Efrat Eisenberg from uh, actually existing commons. The urban commons follow several core characteristics First, the urban commons are produced. Second, they offer a set of livelihood qualities over which rights are negotiated. Third, the urban commons fulfil these and other social needs in a non-commodified manner. Fourth, they necessitate communities to operate them through collaboration, cooperation and communication rather than through private interest and competition. Altogether, the commons provide the opportunity to to obtain wealth, to obtain social wealth and to organise social production. And I think that's quite... Uh, a good point to end on because in essence this whole thing has been a process from when from the, the, the day you guys moved in to where we are now trying to move forward so thank you
Thanks so much. Again, just moving straight on, ask Andreas Lang to come to the stage. Last but not least, I hope. Um, cheers. I thought I, I quickly talk who I am and who Public Works is, even though I've been introduced, and uh, show very briefly a project which we've done locally as citizens and then move on to Ruban and maybe extend a little bit to what Doina has said earlier. Um, I guess it's important for me to trace a little bit how public works as a practice established. We see, I studied architecture, but very quickly moved into the realm of uh, fine art, specifically working with artists in the field of socially engaged practice and relational art, really being not so much interested in the object itself, but in the kind of facilitation of objects to set up relationships, where the, the aesthetic, as Nicolas Bourillon puts it, uh, the, the, the form, the relational form is kind of the aesthetic. Um, so we've worked a lot in the cultural field through kind of uh, invitations, um, galleries, uh, arts commissions, and there was always this ambition that the learnings from these very kind of, I guess, um, special spaces where you're quite protected and you can experiment and you can test ideas for a short term maybe these lessons can be kind of translated into a more conventional architectural production. And there was always a frustration with, with this transition. And um, where do I press the button? <laughs> oh, okay, sorry, I was hiding it. Um, I, I, that led me personally to a move where I thought maybe I should leave that idea of, of forcing all this kind of relational practice into a, a piece of architecture and start acting as a citizen first. And I feel like a lot of the presentation we've heard has that in common where the role of the designer or you as an actor within the project as a citizen, kind of uh, as a commoner in itself, uh, trying to practice in a way and explore what you you're trying to preach in some ways, or design for, maybe it's more the, the word. So uh, this is outside my house, on my doorstep. It's um, in 2007, a Newham Council uh, announced the Arc of Opportunity, which is a very capital-driven development opportunity to invest in Newham. And a group of residents came together to, to see this kind of very kind of neoliberal push how maybe you can somehow create a space in this transition that, that speaks of a different value. Uh, so, I mean, I'm going to cut this very short. We, we created, again, a garden, and I think gardens are, play somewhat a key role as, uh, as a social space but also as a productive space. Um, and I guess why I show it is not so much how great it looks. Uh, it's designed by two artists with us, Nina Pope and Karen Gassman. But I feel that uh, the governance of it and, and the kind of few rules that govern it uh, are quite important. It, uh, it is a garden where no, it's not an allotment. It's a community garden where no one has their own bed. Everything is done uh, collectively and shared collectively. And that ethos is uh, quite important and works really well, uh, that there are no pockets of your own territory within it. Um, the second, uh, the second 
principle is that it remains a public, public park. So you have a group of custodians, a bit like assembly, that, that kind of organize and, and are productive on the land. And there's a kind of agricultural production, but also social production. But at the same time, it retains an openness to the wider public. And, and this kind of production of the citizens of their own kind of uh, uh, public spaces uh, and the kind of shared governance of new and parks and the kind of friends or charity that has formed around it is quite a, a crucial model, I fear, in, in, in the idea of, of creating something that's held in common but is still kind of open to all. Um, and I think the, the idea of knowledge production, again, is quite important. So we, we, the only person employed is Hamish on the left, who's, who's the gardener. And his role is not to garden on behalf, but actually to educate people and teach gardening. So there are times where you can just come, and maybe you're more interested to how to gr- plant, uh, how to grow your own plants at home, but it is a moment of, of knowledge exchange and production. Um, and I guess that needs to be set again against the current discourse of resilience, which has kind of um, arrived at our doorstep. This is a new um, guidelines for the resilience agenda handed out to the offices in Newham. So explaining them what resilience is. But um, it's interesting that the term resilience obviously refers to um, crisis and in Germany, I made a presentation, and they don't want to acknowledge. They don't want to use the term resilience because it acknowledges that there is a crisis. <laughs> so I feel in the UK we are slightly ahead, um, but but it's somewhat uh, difficult. No one really talks what the crisis is. Somehow, everyone's austerity, you know, austerity urbanism, was a reference. But I think the crisis is really the crisis of the neo neoliberal mindset and. And uh, this is somewhat embodied uh, at the same time as this was kind of sent to us, uh, our rent was increased from one pound to 11,000. Um, and this is kind of push of these spaces to go into, uh, be productive in, in the economy, in this kind of market economy that is quite critical. While at the same time, if you read the resilience agenda, we provide community resilience galore. Uh, so there's a kind of education back to the larger governance body, which is the Newham Council, which is, in a way, educating them what community resilience might be about. That it's, 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 not, it's about all these kind of quite tacit learning, fra- fragile networks and relationships that are given time to reinvent, establish themselves, in a way, on, on very different uh, terms, on their own terms. So... That was a very quick one. Um, I just extend a bit of what Doina said. I mean, we've been working with AAA for a number of years, and um, we are kind of the little cousins of, of Urban in Paris. And um, we are based in Hackney Wick. Uh, I, I assume you all know Hackney Wick, but I run through. It's kind of an island next to the Olympics. We have a very noisy neighbor lately. Uh, which really accelerated the transformation. And these are kind of a few visualizations by MUF uh, of uh, looking at the spaces now and then the planning applications that are being submitted. And it's kind of now and after. Um, and it kind of 
really kind of brings home the fact of, of this kind of rapid transformation and, and erasure of a lot of very kind of local uh, networks and, and kind of, I guess, spaces and communities that are operating on what you might describe um, cultures of commoning, uh, however established they are. This is a kind of view of the Carpenters Estate looking onto the Olympic Park. So you also have a brand new landscape, which again is very much based on the idea of consumption and not production. Uh, on the idea of spectacle, this is one of the remaining residents of Carpenters Estate overlooking the park in you know, one of this kind of endless animation of that new landscape. So how are we fighting back with a milk float? Um, Whereas, I guess, Urban in Paris started, not started, but it's very much about land and, and facilities that help facilitate commoning. We, uh, we have less money, but also we thought maybe there are already a lot of moments of commoning and resilience in Hackney Wick, which we should learn from. So the idea of the milk float was really that it allows us to, to nearly roam and attach ourselves to existing um, Projects get to know people, start exploring ideas of co-production, while at the same time the, the back of the milk float becomes uh, a test bed of transporting <coughs> stuff, setting up workshops, uh, having displays, bands playing on. So it's a kind of micro-model of maybe what the facility could look like. The second phase now is nearly take that kind of network that has established around the project and, and localize it on a site. And that's what we are kind of struggling with now, I guess. Um, the project itself could be described around four moves, maybe. Uh, one is making. Um, I, I quite like that quote from Fran Tonkins. It's about very kind of normal things, you would say. Um, but you suddenly meet people that have never held a drill before or never seen fire or, you know, very... You understand somehow that what things that we take for granted are also not part of the everyday in the city anymore. Uh, talking, having forums that, that help understand shared concerns and maybe also invite outsiders in so the network is not only very local but extends uh, across a wider field, London, Paris, uh, Europe. But also with the idea that these forums become um, uh, proactive. So what's happened in the last few months, which I really enjoy, is that it starts from us organizing these talks, people approaching us, I want to do a talk uh, under, within Ruban, but also they help to, to organize uh, or mobilize groups into action, which is great. Um, visits and, and looking at people making existing practices public and also the idea of display. Uh, so I'm just going through these kind of WIC sessions, the talks, they hop around from space to space. They take very many different guises. And it's about kind of forms of occupation as well of, of a wider neighborhood. Fabrication, uh, learning from each other, learning from people that produce, again, with ecological principles, but also, again, bringing production. This is outside Hackney Week Station. Bringing production into the open and allowing people to spontaneously somehow join in. This was a residency for two months. Uh, exploring prototypes of, of reuse. 
And you always feel like you're slightly reinventing the wheel when you do that. Or I could take a Coke can and I make a panel out of it. And, uh. on, the other hand, on the other hand, it produces a knowledge between people which is also quite important. Um, and it creates a kind of, this is kind of, again, using existing free resources to bring design in to, to turn it into something that is accessible uh, here, I mean, trying to use kind of a free resource, and, and I guess the, the the economy is also in the way you cut it and produce it. Uh, not only the economy that it's free resource, but also the economy is how we ab- we're able to barter with this piece of furniture with uh, against temporary use of land. Uh, waste to energy. I'm not going to go into detail, but these are a series of prototypes, and I guess. Third last point. Um, it's good, huh? Third last point. It puts the end inside, but <laughs> not close enough. Um, Doina was talking about people that are time rich, and I think that's, that's harder and harder to account. Someone recently told me, oh, Hackneybeck has changed. You don't see anyone any, around anymore between nine and five. It's because everyone has a job now. Um, but it's this kind of finding the space in which you somehow can um, produce on your own terms. Uh, one example could be Charlie, who's been squatting his field in the Lower Lee Valley for 40 years without anyone noticing, and uh, to grow this plant called comfrey. And uh, it's an invasive species, but it also has a very high nutrition value for composting. So in an area of outstanding or special scientific interest, he's been growing undetected invasive species um, and experimenting with it as a fertilizer. And he took as much as he needs from the land and other people could harvest if they knew about it. So he is instating, in a way, a common... Uh, and we've opened up this practice. Uh, you know, 40 people came, but it also, again, raised the conflict of the landowner suddenly finding out of his practice. Um, also, we started to document what he's been doing over the 40 years and started to somehow package his fertilizer uh, with the proceeds going to a garden that he's supporting. But it's somehow also, as a product, it's not making anyone money, but it is allows to carry the narrative forward. So with Kim, who's in the audience here, we're kind of currently thinking around the idea of what a common product might be. Uh, one that's not designed for the market but designed to either kind of embody a narrative of commoning but also maybe uh, set up actions for, for common practice. Very quickly, one thing we noticed when someone wrote about Abbey Gardens is that everyone he talked to, and I don't know if that's shared, everyone he talked to said, uh, I'm the most important person. Like he talked to the councillor and he said, oh, I was responsible for it. He talked to the artist and they said, oh, it's my garden. You talk to me as a local resident, and I, you know, I was the most important thing. And in a way, it, was, it became impossible to untangle who owns the, the history of that common achievement. And I think we agreed that, uh, that there is no linear narrative to this. Everyone feels they have their own stake in it, which is valid. And... What is important that nobody seems to claim something that isn't his or hers. And this is somewhat what I noticed in Hackney Wick. There are so many competing narratives out of this kind of uh, ethos of sharing that's very strong in Hackney Wick. Suddenly, 
um, people emerge that 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 take ownership that is not quite theirs to monetize it. So the idea of this part of the project is over the last since 2008 to somehow trace a random but alternative narrative uh, through different collections through an archive. This is kind of inviting people to kind of submit books only produced around Hackney Wick. Um, this is uh, just looking at what Hackney Wick has too much of, surplus. Um, and currently on the Olympic Park, we are kind of privileged to be in this shed um, to, to, to display that archive, but also to extend it. And really this is, I think, the E20 narrative is about this successful new landscape and you can buy your property but it also has been a really brutal act of erasure. And uh, how can you introduce different cultures into this changing but also new landscape, I guess is the question. Finally, and that's where temporary use comes back in, negotiating these, negotiating these open openings in the, in the territory are quite difficult. You've seen the kind of immense pressure on land. Abbey Gardens, we were lucky because there's a scheduled monument on site and you can't build on it. So there's a kind of site which seems to be protected through the historic artifact that's embedded in it. Um, so at the moment we're working with the LLDC but also with developers trying to see where we can occupy sites and to bring somewhat that network together in a, in a space which itself might be quite agile and start to occupy these moments in time, these cracks. Uh, starting with uh, a tool library hopefully in, in the summer, um, again, which introduces a different, different kind of economy, ethos, maybe ideas of commoning into it. And of course, it's all online, as open source as we can be. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. I've got so many things written down, but um, it's not. I can talk to them later. So I really want people to ask questions, but also if you if you have your own definitions of commoning to put in, if you have challenges of the way these different things work, I think it's really good. Um, and also, I just want to acknowledge that the setup of this room is probably the least successful spatial embodiment of commoning you could possibly imagine. Um, but that's fine because it's all about the verb and the doing. So if you can input as much as you can, and we can all comment in the knowledge. Um, and there's a question at the back there. A comment, I should say. No questions. No, I just wanted to know kind of the notion of scaling up, because obviously these are very much local initiatives that you're working on and obviously fell victim to you know, the land increase um, in cost. And I guess where, if, if you know, maybe you could possibly, any suggestions or kind of what your thoughts are on becoming kind of resilient, but kind of extending that from the local region to maybe a city or, you know, maybe working with policymakers or kind of what your ideas are if you wanted to kind of take it to the next level. Yeah, I guess it's kind of not remaining just quite local and extending outside of Hackney Wick or 
or not. Thank you. Since Hackney Wick was mentioned, shall I answer? Sure, yeah. Um, it's a critique that uh, was leveled against us in the Teatro Mundi event not too long ago, that it's somewhat too concerned and glorifying or romanticizing the local somewhat. And I, I think the, the answer for me is, is, first of all, we are exploring a practice. So we are trying to, to, to extend our understanding while doing it. But also we are quite concerned with constructing a certain nearness, a closeness, yeah? which all these spaces have in common, where there is conflict, where there is kind of negotiation, etc. And, uh, and you have to understand how that operates before you can scale it up. And I think Doina is, is, is probably more ambitious in that, that they think more strategically and large scale. But I guess one thing we think about is uh, scale being not only physical but also a network and of course a time scale um, but also this idea of a rhizomatic structure uh, where you don't have a centralized stem in a way but you have a network of roots that kind of uh, emerge and are networked and that's why I think it's important that these kind of smaller initiatives are presented here uh, in a way of trying to find a way together uh, to, to, make, to make a bigger impact. And I guess we in Hackenwick are quite conscious that we have continuous debate conversations with the LLDC, who is the planning authority. So there is an attempt to, to educate each other a little bit. So it takes influence on not only the very local level, and I guess that's also why I showed the new and resilience agenda, because that's suddenly where, where the discussion goes onto a political kind of new... Uh, and yesterday I saw, or today I saw, uh, a speech made by Boris Johnson in the mayor's kind of assembly exactly addressing affordable workspace in Hackney Wick, which is something that in the Wick session has really emerged quite strongly. So it's somehow, not only through us, but finds its way into these forums. I think as well with uh, AAA uh, in Paris... Like they've gone through like three different iterations of kind of and developments of a project, and it's taken a, a certain amount of time to get there. But they're moving into in a towards a bigger scale and a bigger scale of influence. And I think like in a in, in a way like Assembly in Deptford, like we're at the, we're at the very beginning, <coughs> and we're looking at ways of things of using like the localism act to to try and implement this for, like with a greater area and greater kind of... It will still be local. It's obviously bound by the Neighbourhood Forum, but looking at how we can, like, use the Neighbourhood Forum and kind of, like, leverage within the council for more of these kind of spaces to take, take, take root. And just add one more point. I think it's been quite important for us that we were exploring that space and the idea of that space very much on, like, a local footprint because there's been lots of research um, with like local schools in Deptford and we have Greenwich Park just down the road but people don't even walk down to the Greenwich and I think even though it's good to scale up and have like a visible image like on a wider scale but also like really local like what do you do in five minutes when you walk out of your house like those are the those are kind of like the territories that people live in day to day and if that space there doesn't provide a green space then what are you going to do and that's kind of we've been exploring what the garden could be for the future, otherwise no one would have had a relationship with it and it just would have disappeared and been developed on. So for us it's been staying small, it's been quite important. I think it's a, it's a really interesting um, tension with Commons and this is, I, I'm sure there are lots of people here who um, 
who have thought a lot about commons or are working on projects as well. So it's, if anyone has a... This is almost a question to the audience. But um, is that it's, it seems to be about trying to remove a level of distance between people and... Um, and certain kinds of resources, whether that be green spaces, you know, rather than a park being, as you say, boring, just grass to walk on, it's being it's something to to touch and change and to rip, rip things up and put other things there. And you know, AA was very much about food and you know making things, removing that level of um, mediation between people and making. But then, so that has to be local because it has to be about touching the physical things which are right around you but then does it does that limit it because there's only so many people that can fit into that space you can't make it infinite and you can't make it you want to invite everyone but because it has to be physical in a way to exist then you can't fit everyone in so is that that almost seems like a I wonder if there are ways to overcome that to really make a a commoning organization or a, a network of commoning something that's bigger and and less local I'm not sure if it's I mean, you, it, it, it starts to happen on open source, and like the WikiHouse might be an example where, mm. where it's, it re- it's quite a global network of practitioners. Kind of so for anyone who doesn't know, WikiHouse is like an open source um, housing design um, that you can basically adapt to your needs, download and, and print using what is becoming fairly standard kind of um, laser cutting or milling mm. te- technology I guess so that is yeah something that opens it up yeah um, hi I have a question to uh, Andreas uh, thanks very much for your wondrous presentation um, I work at the UC at UCL and um, as you must know uh, we are sort of neighbors and uh, we bought a huge chunk of land that and uh, UCL recently put a planning application that would have seen um, di- displacement of about thousand council tenants from the from Carpenters' estate. After the public outcry, and also after the outcry within the university, uh, UCL pulled out from that uh, from that master plan, and the university is now re- redrafting the master plan, descaling it, retweaking, and so on. Um, here comes the question: um, Do ready. you think? we can be good neighbors still. And uh, secondly, would you work with us, either with the, with the estates or with academic departments, um, to help us uh, make good neighbors? Is that a job of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, or a bribe? Um, no, we are working with the UCL the, on an energy project at the moment, and it's, it's around community energy. Um, I think what I guess I struggle with is this complete erasure that's happened. And the Carpenters' estate is quite a good example. And the replacement with a really commodified culture, culture that of the neoliberal idea uh, is being played out there. So I think that needs to be uh, subverted and uh, counteracted in a way, or resisted in some form. And it's great that it comes from within the university, it comes from... Uh, from many places, but it's not always a situation of us and them, but it's often a negotiation between lots of different people, I noticed. Um, so the LLDC is a good example. There are kind of, there's so many different heads in the LLDC that it's kind of internally quite incoherent what they're doing. So 
finding ways to establish alternative modes of working or co-working is quite crucial. Yeah. So I work with you. And I'm sure it'll be great name. I was... Hi. Hi, Andreas. Long time no see. Um, I've got a um, question about how you see yourselves or the work, actually not to you, but to everybody who's presented today. Uh, what your relationship is with the mainstream systems of rights and economic system that exist already. Do you resist it? Um, you say you do, obviously. Um, but it's very interesting because I, I think I only heard the word value mentioned twice in all the presentations and your um, rent rise was a notable one. But quite often I've noticed what, ha what happens to successful projects such as the ones you guys are doing, what you're doing is creating value that may very soon be capturable by mainstream e economic players. So what do you propose to do when you do that, or when that happens? Um, one example for, uh, is that a famous guerrilla gardener, for example, and you might know of him, um, he is, of course, uh, apparently uh, being paid now by a developer working in his local area. Um, so, you know, what would you do or have, you know, is, what's your position when that happens? Can I open that up to everyone, because I, to everyone here and anyone else in the audience, because I think that clearly all of these projects have shown that there has to be a level of engagement with what exists, with the, with the Localism Act, with systems of, um, you know, with kind of... Um, economic systems in Paris, for example, and with the LLDC, there has to be a level of engagement as a strategy to allow things to to take place that then show a new way of things happening. And that so that seems to be the case. And yeah, so what level of engagement is are people comfortable with and should be ideal? I suppose is yeah yeah. So yeah, to the panel, but anyone else, what level of, of engagement or what, with what kind of mechanisms can happen in commoning? Um, just on, like, on a, for us, as a, like a kind of interesting thing for the Localism Act is, um, so it's a council site and we have a lease, as assembly, we have a lease, and part of our lease agreement is that we're not allowed to, as assembly, do any form of um, protesting to keep the site as a garden. Um, so that's why we have set up a friends of group so we're not actually a part of the friends of group um, and they got wind that we had spoken to the localism act which is a helpline and then I, we got a really stern email from the council um, saying we, we, you really shouldn't go down this route and I was like oh I thought I just rang an anonymous helpline <laughs> hang on I'm getting a really certain email from the council and so that kind of scaling up is quite interesting because we really, our whole process has been exploring what the space could be and meeting people to do that. And now we're kind of at that stage when we want to visualise what the site could be rather than just the council plan. Um, but they don't want us to. But then the Localism Act has been put there for communities to have a say in what happens in the local area. So it'd be interesting for us to explore that path and to see whether we get pushed down by the council and whether the Localism Act like can support us or... It doesn't. I mean, I guess um, there's. I don't know, maybe it's only anecdotal what I can answer, but um, 
this idea of resistance I struggle with. And uh, I recently, I forgot the name of the author, but she, she kind of explained this idea of reworking power structures. And if I look at this uh, work we're doing as a kind of reworking of existing power structures, I feel it's somehow more positive than feeling to define yourself as being against something. So for me personally, that's quite important. So maybe that is also kind of why you engage in a different way with, with people you might have political disagreements with. What I noticed uh, in Abbey Gardens is that, of course, people start to put the garden onto their website when they sell their house as an asset they're close to. But the group itself, uh, there is a constant debate. You know, last year all the leaks got stolen. You know, someone stole all the leaks. So there's always an impulse, let's close the gate. Uh, and then there's a discussion, no, we've done that kind of to be open to share. And that kind of constant reminder of why you do what you do also creates a kind of strong ethos in the group to, to, to cre retain an openness and, and a shared value. And I find these conflicts and challenges quite important. In Hackney Wick, another thing we're doing is, uh, and I saw Andrew, I think he might have left in the audience, uh, we, we started a, a research around the valorization of temporary use and kind of understanding the often competing values that are being played out and the different motivations. That helps us to understand it, but I still don't have a clear answer how we resist it. But I feel this idea of an open public forum in which these kind of shifts and nuances are being registered and discussed is quite crucial. And that, that seems to be why commoning or commons can't be, can't kind of stop at a certain point and become what they, you know, um, stay as what they've ended up as. It's always, that, and that's why this, is, this thing of the verb came up a couple of times, because you're always having to um, keep doing, keep negotiating with new challenges that, and new issues, new threats to to kind of closure or possibly the challenge of growing and as you get bigger then how do you create an organisation that's still a, that still means you're commoning but mm -hmm. so um, I think bringing it back to the design competition um, that's, a, that's a real challenge and something we're interested to see whether designs on paper can take that into account how do you take account for how things how this um, this idea this design is going to keep being active keep um, requiring people to do commoning rather than saying it will look like this because when you say it will look like this it's very easy for people to put it in a brochure for a flat and say well look you know th then it creates value and it sends that value elsewhere and mm. it seems to be um, yeah so that's a real challenge for, for a design competition but it's something that we think will be exciting to see if that can actually be, be done be imagined uh, a an anecdote, and it will get to a question eventually. Might just have to wait for a second. Um, it's specifically about the uh, resistance versus reworking power structure. Um, I'm from New York City. My parents uh, developed a community garden back in the 1970s, and it was under the umbrella of Green Thumb. And during the Giuliani years, fortunately, their community garden wasn't taken away. It was sort of fenced off by a, a third party, and he's now using it as a private resource, which is a different topic. But Giuliani um, took away a lot of community gardens precisely because um, as much as uh, community gardens were framed in that 
reworking um, power structure dynamic, inherently one group had the power and the other group um, didn't. And you know, uh, it, community gardens sprung up around a time where land rights and um, sorry, real estate prices weren't high enough to justify developing the land. So to a certain extent, it didn't really matter what was there. The fact that it was free land you know, justified itself. But as soon as value was created, it was sort of removed. So I, I guess my question is, to what extent can we frame this not as a benefit to the community, but as a necessary right to the urban condition, and sort of what's the moral and ethical implications and framework that we can use to do precisely that. That's a good brief for your competition. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it relates, I think, to what Doina said about taking it beyond the lifestyle aspect of being an alternative lifestyle space and kind of looking at the essential conditions of, of survival and how commoning can actually respond to those extreme challenges, which um, are very different in different places. And, that, you know, doing a competition in London would probably um, throw up different things to New York, although actually some of the challenges here specifically are, are quite, um, quite similar. But also, I guess, in terms of the New York example, which is quite nice, is the issue of scale, that I think you had 1,000, and it shrank down to 600 community gardens. So, yeah, you lost 400, but there's still a lot of them do exist. So, and, and it is at a scale of an urban intervention, I think. So, yeah. But how you can safeguard these practices is, is quite a, yeah, an important issue to untangle, so I, I, I don't have an answer. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, we're looking into different ways of, like, almost presenting the garden, so rather than just presenting it to the council of the garden, we're, we're looking at, we're exploring ways of pre projecting it as, like, an educational space, and, like, the free school, and all that sort of, all those extra dimensions, and you can, you can then start to, you've got something on the table to negotiate, rather than it just being the pure, like, monetary value of the space, and I think... I mean, at the minute, that is a form of, like, resistance, and that's working, definitely working within the system. But at the minute, I think that's the only way that, as we can operate on, on this one side. Can I put a question? And you, you said during your presentation that gardens are an interesting thing in this regard, and um, they've kind of... They're the most common way, it seems, that commoning is played out at the moment... And is that by chance? Is that just because that's, you know, when you have a green space, we call it a garden, and it's kind of the garden aspect sums up the fact that it's live, and whereas a park says that it's landscaped. Mm -hmm. um, what is it about gardens, but also where could, does commoning need to move beyond gardens? You've just said you might start calling it, yeah, a, an education space. And just because it's got grass and it's outdoors, yeah, it doesn't have to be called a garden. It could be called a classroom. You know, you, you have the right to... You don't have to put a roof over something to have the right to, to decide that it's a classroom, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, I just wonder for everyone, where do you think commoning... What else does it need to move into? It relates to what you were saying as well. What else does it move in, need to move into in order to demonstrate that it has legitimacy enough to be given space and to be allowed space to to continue growing. 
I think the, it, I mean, Doina kind of talked about the cooperative land trust. So mm -hmm. maybe it's also a revival of the cooperative uh, ideal or kind of like networks of cooperatives out there which do all sorts of different things. So mm -hmm. maybe the idea of commoning can emerge through many different avenues. But um, what is interesting for me about gardening is that it's one of the few programs, I guess in architectural terms, that, that connects uh, different age groups and ethnicities really easily uh, and fluently. And I think that's quite rare to find. And the other thing is you have a very direct relationship with land and being productive on land. And even if it's just growing flowers. Um, so I think that kind of... These, these aspects make it make it quite unique. And also that it's a leisure space as well as a productive space, so you have different activities happening simultaneously, different mm -hmm. people come with different motivations, kind of being in the same space at yeah. the same time. All these are kind of small details which make gardening somewhat... Yeah. Um, But then as... as um, Land, as land gets tarmacked and, uh, or as it gets built upon as it, as it will or you know some gardens will continue to resist others will be built upon and I suppose the challenge then for, des for design more as a conscious activity rather than as something that emerges in a green space that's left over is how do you create commoning where there isn't access to earth you know yeah. to land and to, to ways to grow things what other you know what else can you grow you can grow energy to a degree in southeast London community energy, cooperative energy. I don't know if you know about them, but they're um, trying to, currently trying to develop a cooperative model of energy generation by, I think, contributions, collectively buying solar cells and then installing them on the, the roofs of schools and, and other public buildings that are working as partners. So energy certainly is something, hopefully, that could start to be commoned in a kind of, you know, when the green is gone, maybe. There was a question here. Um, I didn't catch his name, but the guy who was planting the um, Charlie. Yeah, Charlie. Um, he, his. It was kind of interesting because I thought his project, in many ways, if we can call it a project, or your project about him, there was something very different about what he was doing. And I think what's interesting is it was kind of problematizing uh, as the, the notion of the commons as much as it was kind of developing it. Um, because there's, there's this kind of assumption that um, the commons are necessarily socially productive or environmentally friendly and things. And, and there was something about what he was doing within that which really wasn't interested in that. It was this notion of the commons of using this uh, to his own ends. Uh, and I think that, that we've kind of overlooked that. And I think it relates very much to this notion of value. And it relates also to the question that you've asked um, you know, uh, about uh, community benefits and so forth, that it's not about community benefits necessarily, it's about uh, the possibility of the commons as a right. Could I respond yeah. to that? Um, I, I think what's most interesting about the example that was given was the fact that uh, over the course of 40 or 14 years, um, he hasn't been caught yet, which means that the land's sufficiently blighted that until a conversation with another actor upon that common land um, can occur, he's really you know, the only one. And the commons develops out of conversations and sort of resistances and accommodations. So until you know, the monologue becomes a dialogue, um, I say 
let them have at it. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm sorry you're so far back I didn't see you. Okay, I'm intrigued. I, I really enjoyed the talks, so thanks. And, uh, but there's one thing I noticed all the way through. Um, the way things look... And I think that's key to the dude that grows comfrey in the, in the bush. You know, the way he looked and the way he was in that space. You know, there was no buildings. It was just him, his idea, you know, he used his mind. And there was something growing in the ground. And it was really simple. And uh, I think maybe this is coming from a more architectural place where we have like a computers and CAD files and things like this. Um, so the aesthetics of that have, are coming through here for me. And I'm noticing that that's affecting the way we behave and the way we present ourselves. And it's our vanity. And it's my vanity. You know, I'm vain. You know, but I have the power to show that. And uh, I just want to let people know that they have that too. And they don't have to stick to computers and these files when they're presenting their project, projects. Um, I'd like to present a project, but mine going to probably look like that. But I'd be happy to go with someone's project that looked cool and looked real and looked natural and really blended in with buildings and uh, grass, you know, that complemented both. And that didn't look like... I don't know, some military air hangar or some <laughs> shipyard container. Like, although they're very useful things, the aesthetics of them, they're not that beautiful. And I know that we can create things that are more pleasing to the eye and not so sharp on the eye. And, uh, have a, and it's not just the way things look. The way things look are developed through a process. And the... <laughs> And that path, that process, creates that beauty. I think, and I think the kind of architectural aesthetic, I wouldn't say it's letting it down, but I think it will just take it down another path. Mm -hmm. And I just want people to know that they don't have to do that. And, they, and I think the, the image and the way things look will speak more than just about uh, how successful they are. And I think that will, con that will travel and that will continue the the message that you guys are trying to say. You know? I think it's a and I think also companies won't, sorry. And I think companies won't also won't be that interested in the way things look if they look a bit shitty, you know? And that might deter them from wanting to grab things so quickly when they're in, when they're in their infancy. And that things can actually grow and they don't have to be a business. Maybe they will become something like that, but... Can uh, I say so what... What yeah. I understand from what you're saying is, I, is that the aesthetic could easily mask the aesthetic of a design could very easily it, mask yeah. what what the intention is of what will come out of that space and who will work together. And actually, I yeah. love that you mentioned the issue of like someone has, to, someone has to lock the toilets and stuff. It's kind of yeah. you know the, the mundane aspect of actually working together and isn't always 
very like it doesn't necessarily look good in a PowerPoint all the time, yeah. you know. And, and that's not what obviously that's not what commenting is about creating a kind of an aesthetic that looks good on a screen. Or that and so it's a it's a really I think it's a really I know it might it might it might look really weird and you might be like not think it's like great when you first see things, but if you really look, uh, yeah, it opens up. You know, I know I'm dressed like a hippie, but. <laughs> can I add, can I add really quickly? So, it, can, can we just have a response yeah, from that? Anyway, thank you. Um, I guess for us, like our site is the project is predominantly being a garden, and I do work as a community gardener. But Ross doesn't work as a gardener. Ross is a designer, and actually, we always said with our project, like we haven't. I come from a design background, but at our site, we really haven't done very much design. It's kind of like organically happened. And that's been like one frustration for us that we haven't actually done that. And maybe as artists and designers, that project doesn't shout, look, I'm an artist and designer. Actually, the project's really been about like the activities and the people in the garden. And the whole point of why we started doing stuff in the garden was that like we could see the value of the space. But if no one had a relationship with the space, they wouldn't care if it got lost. And so that has more taken over like making sure that we, we are open every weekend and that people are in the space and the space is usable has been more important than us being artists and designers. But now, because the site is under threat, we need to like play at the council's game and that kind of language of, look, you've got a design, but we could have a design for this site as well, but your site just provides housing, but this drawing and a potential idea could provide all these other things. So I kind of feel like... We haven't actually done very much design at all. Which no. Well, it was already designed so much before we were even yeah. there. Like, we've got a building that's a 1920 school, and the garden was landscaped in the 80s. So it already had, like, a, a vision placed upon it, and it just become overgrown and, like, unused. So our role, really, was just making it used again. We didn't have to, sort of, like, make anything new in there yeah. to, to work and, and, and for us to do stuff on it. Um, I think on that note, which is that the point I take away from what you just said is the, the design isn't there to, to beautify it, it's there to be a real agent because by having a design you can construct, a, you can put forward a different reality to the council and if you didn't have a design there it would be very hard for you to explain and make tangible what you're suggesting to the council. So that, and that's, I think, what we're really asking for in designing the urban commons, is for designs to put forward potential realities that then when you put them in front of people, say, this could actually work in a different way to how you imagine it happening. And um, so, yeah, that's the call to action, is for, is for designers to put those ideas forward and put those new realities forward that could actually show that commoning can take place in the city, that garden communal gardens uh, could exist but then also that commonly could exist in very urban spaces where there isn't that access to land as well. Um, I'm going to just as we kind of everyone close up we're going to bring up the um, website again so that anyone here who's interested in entering the competition can take that down and um, read the full brief, read all the details of the amazing judges that are going to be looking at these designs um, and upcoming events that we have we have a um, public lecture on the 21st of April with Ash Amin about um, infrastructure in um, a Brazilian favela and how people work together to create that communally. 
um, and various other things coming up. So please have a look at that. Please enter if you're interested. And thank you so much for coming. Thank you to everyone. Enjoy now.